Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a new draft plan released this week for high-speed rail in California puts the cost of the San Francisco to Los Angeles bullet train at $105 billion. We'll talk to Rail Authority CEO Brian Kelly. And in Canada, a bridge blockade by truck drivers linking Detroit and Windsor, Ontario, is risking major economic damage as automakers are unable to get the parts they need to keep their production lines going. Additional demonstrations are disrupting other border crossings and have brought parts of Canada's capital, Ottawa, to a near standstill. We look at the protests' impact in both Canada and the U.S. after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Some Republican governors and a former U.S. president have cheered on protests by thousands of truckers in Canada that started over anger with vaccine mandates. One of the demonstrations has blocked the Ambassador Bridge linking Detroit and Windsor, a major trade route. It's hitting automakers who were already struggling with supply chain issues particularly hard. Ford said yesterday it shut down two Canadian plants and Toyota and Honda said they could soon close production lines. Meantime, truck drivers have been camped out on the streets of Ottawa for some two weeks now. And for more on that, we're joined first by Emma Jacobs, who's been on the ground in the Canadian capital reporting for NPR. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What's it like in Ottawa today? Well, you know, I have been back and forth between Ottawa and, and my home base, which is about two hours away in Montreal. So um, I, I came back yesterday, but it is continuing, you know, much as it has for the past two weeks. Um, these vehicles are really paralyzed a lot of downtown. Um, and, and today, actually, a sort of offshoot of the convoy headed to the airport and has been slowing down traffic around the airport. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And I mean, the one thing I will say is it, it's quieter over the last couple of days than it, it had been because there was a uh, civil lawsuit that was brought and an injunction was filed um, for the, the honking of these truck horns, which had, had been pretty deafening for days and days. And that is now tampered down a little bit. So, you know, I, I think residents are grateful for that. Yeah, we actually had a little bit of tape of the blaring horns, and I actually didn't feel like we could use it because I didn't want to freak out anyone who was on the road right now, but also um, because it was really in incredibly unpleasant. I cannot imagine 
having to listen to that for days, and, and we are going on some two weeks now related to the the uh, trucks basically being in front of the Canadian Parliament, and people live there, right? What has it done to people's lives and businesses? Yeah, so it, it's very, in and around Parliament Hill, there are residential neighborhoods and there, there are businesses. A lot of those businesses have closed um, because the staff were were being harassed or ending up in confrontations with these demonstrators who come in and, and won't wear masks and, and you know push back at being asked to wear masks. So a, a huge part of, of the downtown uh, business court, these, these businesses are all closed and they're you know, losing, losing money every day. And it's a real hardship for them. Um, for residents, uh, you know, they, they've, they've dealt with the din. Um, also all the trucks, you know, stay running because, um, they, they are being supplied with fuel, even though they're in place and they are running, uh, these, these big trucks downtown. So that they can get um, the heaters on in there. I imagine it's cold. It is, yeah. Um, and and so that's that's just a, a another sort of constant overlay of this. And some people are are also being harassed by uh, convoy supporters um, just in the street for for wearing masks, um, for for pushing back about the noise. Um, there was an attempted arson in a building uh, earlier this week where, where residents had, had asked uh, demonstrators outside to, outside to keep it down. Uh, who is out there, Emma? A lot has been made of seeing extremist symbols and, and so on, but who are the protesters? I, I think there is a real mix. Um, some of the, the key organizers are sort of known right-wing uh, populist organizers, but I think a lot of the members of this crowd are are motivated by the variety of, of COVID-19 health measures um, and, and a lot of conspiracy theories about vaccines. Um, I think sort of the, the mix of motivations for being there is part of what makes this so hard to de-escalate and also just the, the Sort of everyone is is really steeped in a lot of misinformation, so it's hard to have uh, conversations, you know, and, and find common ground there. Um, and and there are definitely some some people in the the crowds who have, you know, their, their own their own extreme ideologies, um, and and are are difficult uh, for for police to know how to handle, I think. Yeah. And well, I guess one of the things that may be revealing is, is there uh, a uniform sort of ask in terms of their demands, at least? Um, so there, there are some people who are sort of the self-appointed leaders of this convoy, and they've, they've often been spokespeople. Um, sort of the, the uniting thing for, for most participants is they want an end to all public health mandates. So masks, uh, vaccine passports, um, vaccine requirements at the border, and for for federal employees, um, and then you know in this this sort of loose core of organizers, they've been very um, extreme demands, like they want a role in government. Um, so so yes and no, and I, I I think again that's that's part of what 
makes it, it difficult for the government to, to figure out how to handle this or even how concerned to be. I think, I think they're, they're having trouble reaching a consensus on what this is. Mm. Emma Jacobs, is a freelance reporter who's been reporting on the ground for NPR in Ottawa and is based in Montreal. I want to bring into the conversation now Steve Riley, an investigative reporter for Grid News. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We've been hearing from like police in Ottawa and so on that uh, part of what's really sustaining this protest is actually support, financial support coming from outside sources, including the U.S. Is this true? Well, uh, there are a lot of questions about that. Um, so what um, we looked into at GRID, my colleagues, Anya Van Wachtendonk, Benjamin Powers and myself, we looked at some of the social media activity that is fueling a lot of what's happening on the streets of Ottawa, which Emma just talked about, and a lot of the fundraising activity. And uh, what we found were some indications of inauthentic actors uh, who could be from Canada, who could be from the United States, or who could be from uh, another country altogether who are driving some of the online conversation that's behind the protests and behind the fundraising that is supporting it. What have you learned, or who have you learned, is behind the biggest face group, Facebook groups that are supporting this? So as of Monday, uh, one of the largest networks of Facebook groups, about 300,000 followers, uh, we noticed uh, was administrated, administrated by uh, one woman in Missouri which we thought was strange because obviously this is a Canadian protest and why is an American uh, starting all these Facebook groups in order to support it? Uh, we looked into it further and found that that was actually a stolen account. It was a hacked account. Mm. We made contact with uh, the woman in Missouri and she verified uh, the information we had. And, and so what we're left with are, are a lot of questions about who, who uh, used this account, who started the account and, uh, uh, and why they decided to become involved. And so there is also on the other side of this, the money, there was a GoFundMe apparently that was organized for protesters that raised like 8 million US dollars. What can you tell us about that? Well, the GoFundMe fundraiser uh, was shut down uh, due to questions about uh, uh, GoFundMe was trying to verify that the funds were being used for the intended purpose and that the fundraiser complied with its terms of service. And so the fundraising has now shifted to a different site called Give, Send, Go. Um, and some of the same questions uh, surround uh, the activity there, but that site is a little uh, um, more permissive in terms of the activity that is allowed on the site. I see. But still, $8 million is... You know, I think even as your piece uh, in Grid News says, is an astonishing amount of money for something like this. And what's also making it very interesting is that there is a social media activity and so on from right-wing politicians in the U.S. What is their connection to this? I understand they're frustrated, or at least some Republican leaders have voiced frustration about GoFundMe canceling that campaign. That's right. Some Republican leaders have uh, been very frustrated with GoFundMe. Um, we have uh, five or six attorneys general or governors in, in various states who have um, said they intend to investigate the issue. Um, but I think the root of it is this uh, ideological uh, match between uh, part of the American right and part of the Canadian right um, that's kind of latched on to the uh, uh, segment of the electorates in those two countries who are uh, hesitant or opposed to the vaccine and vaccine mandates. 
So, Emma Jacobs, in addition to what's happening in Ottawa, there's been a lot of activity on the border. I mentioned what's been happening on Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor, but we are also hearing that there have been other border protests that have cropped up. Can you just talk a little bit about those? Yeah, so there's been a crossing between Alberta and Montana that has been blocked um, as, as long as the vehicles have been in Ottawa now, so for almost two weeks. And today, or potentially overnight, um, farm equipment and other vehicles have been brought in to block another crossing um, between North Dakota and Manitoba. So this is again where the, the number of vehicles, you know, is, is not enormous, but the, the size of the vehicles um, and you know, being really strategic about their placement, they can, they can have a huge impact. Um, the Ambassador Bridge, you know, it is, it's just such a key part of, of US-Canada trade and, and interconnected industries like the auto industry. Yeah, and as I understand it, even another highway route, basically, uh, that connects Ontario with Port Huron has also been snarled by vehicles uh, and traffic, so making it very hard to have any goods pass there. And then you mentioned earlier that airport uh, departure, <laughs> that people were departing to head to the airport. Do you know if that's an organized and deliberate action as well? So it's being led by by one of these sort of loose organizers um, named Pat King, um, and, and he has been leading this group of vehicles to the airport. Um, and also there's there's been some speculation um, on their social media channels about whether they they go drive around schools later in the day. Um, oh he's, you know, it's, it's really hard to say this is the leader of the movement because there is sort of this constellation of people who, who are, you know, influencers within their sort of sphere. Yes. Um, well, so much evolving in this Canadian protest, and we will have more about it after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Canadian trucker protest occupying Ottawa as well as parts, areas along the border of the U.S.-Canada border. And we're talking with Emma Jacobs, a reporter for NPR. Jacobs is based in Montreal and reporting on the ground in Ottawa. Steve Riley is also with us, an investigative reporter for Grid News. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions about what is going on there? Do you have concerns? 866-733-6786 is the number. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can post thoughts on Instagram or email us, forum at kqed.org. I want to bring into the conversation now Andrew Cohen, a journalist and associate professor of journalism and communications at Carleton University in Ottawa. Andrew Cohen, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. Can you talk a little bit about how the government has been responding so far to these protests? 
Well, governments at all levels have failed. Uh, it begins with the city of Ottawa, which one might have thought would have been prepared for this type of thing. After all, this is a G8 capital, and we are not unused to protests. Uh, Parliament Hill, which is like your Capitol Hill, is often full of people. So it's nothing new to us, but this one, in which they mobilized trucks, was new to them, uh, or they were unprepared for it. The province, province of Ontario, um, has been less than engaged, but the real challenge will be to the government of Canada, the federal government, which the parliament of which meets in in on Parliament Hill in the House of Commons. Um, it's in session, and um, this has up to now been considered a municipal or provincial thing. Um, the roads, for example, are under uh, municipal jurisdiction. Uh, for the federal government to become involved without being too technical, they have to. there has to be a request from the city and the province to the federal government to involve itself. Now, why is that important? That's important if the federal government had to use the military, for example, and we've had an example of that in Canadian history in 1970. So the question now is, uh, how much can the federal government do? Will it try to use moral suasion? Uh, will it, um, or will it feel that there is no negotiation with these folks and they'll have to do something uh, more coercive. Uh, at the moment, the, there are a number of different ministers, Minister of Public Safety, the Minister of Defense, and others who are conferring. It's not just a crisis in Ottawa, of course. As you've mentioned, it's a crisis on, uh, in Windsor and other places. And uh, I, everybody wants this to be diffused as peacefully and diplomatically as possible. There are many people who are thinking that that's impossible now. Well, a couple of comments from our listeners. James writes, how is it possible for international border crossings between two of the richest nations on earth to be closed by miscreants and yet no law enforcement has been exercised to rectify the situation? Paul writes, if this was the U.S., I would suggest condemning those trucks as a public nuisance and confiscating them. Perhaps those lawbreakers will be less enthusiastic if their means of livelihood is taken away. Let me go to caller Mark in Oakland. Hi, Mark. Good morning. Um I think you guys may have addressed my question. I'm an expat Canadian, been in the Bay Area since the 80s. And I'm just wondering, where is law enforcement? I mean, if I park in the middle of the street, I'm going to get a ticket. Why aren't they at a minimum ticketing? And I understand that there would be reasons for not going in and towing. It might spark violence. But it, it just seems like a complete abdication of political leadership at every municipal, provincial, and federal level of government. Mm. Mark, thanks for sharing your thoughts. And, and Andrew Cohen, so just so I'm clear, the, the municipalities have requested help from the federal government, right? Or reinforcements or resources? Uh, they, they have talked about it, and they've, uh, they have, I don't think it's gone formally through. But your caller raises a very good question. There are a suite of legal options, um, and for some reason they weren't exercised. I'll give you an example. Um, for the first week of this, we're now day 15 or 16, the first week of this, the truckers who brought their trucks downtown uh, took the wheels off immobilizing them, um, honked their horns at all hours of the day. It was a cacophony of ear-splitting dimensions. It was not fun. We don't, I'm two miles away and I could hear it, but nothing like being two blocks away. It took a 21-year-old public servant to, to go to court and got a judge to issue an injunction. Um, and so the, the honking has stopped. Uh, the diesel fuels polluting the air, the fireworks displays, the sound and light show, that continues, um, as well as the disruption of people's lives, which includes uh, shops and, and, 
and stores and restaurants and, and clinics and libraries being closed downtown. Not the whole downtown, just part of it. So you'd think by now the city with a suite of legal options or the federal government with uh, even more options would have done more than it has. And for some reason, there is this paralysis in the political class. None of us can figure this out. I think that they feel that these folks uh, may be armed, they may be menacing and dangerous, and they are not ready to confront them yet, although I haven't read any evidence of arms or explosives in these trucks, but there are some people who think that, and the police have said, there is no policing solution to this, said the police chief early on. Uh, we need help, so the request has been made through some channels, but I don't think formally from the province to the federal government. Let me go to Michael in Oakland next time. Michael, go ahead. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I'm actually also an expat Canadian, uh, and I, I think it's really important that your listeners be aware that, you know, these these truck protests are so visually arresting that it would be easy to get the misimpression that Canada is just as politically divided as the United States is over COVID-related public health measures. And that is just absolutely not the case. There is polling on this in every province throughout the entire pandemic, the overwhelming majority of Canadians support vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, mass mandates, the whole public health kit and caboodle. Uh, these guys mm -hmm. are a small radical minority with, you know, some very far right support behind them. And because they have massive trucks, they can create quite the spectacle. But Canada has had a very successful buy-in on public health. And unsurprisingly, the result of that has been we have far fewer deaths and hospitalizations per Canada, and the hit to our economy has been much less severe than it has been in the United hmm. States. Michael, thanks for that call. And let me get your reaction, uh, Andrew Cohen. How much do the issues that the, the truckers are, are raising, uh, to the extent that we can understand them, reflect most of the views of Canadians? Well, they don't. And Michael is absolutely right. Uh, Canada has one of the highest levels of vaccination among Western nations. I think we're over 80%. There are, of course, like every other country, a small and, in this case, noisy minority, uh, which opposes it. They are demonstrating in a country which has had a consensus on this. This is not the United States. Although Americans seem to feel that the, the same levels, as Michael has said, divisions exist here as in the United States, it isn't so. By and large, public health authorities in this country, in fact, all of them, and they're provincial for the most part, have brought in vaccine mandates, have brought in masking mandates, have uh, closed. I mean, I was out to lunch today and only half the restaurant was allowed to be open. We're still operating under COVID restrictions. So this crowd, uh, which uh, are, they're called truckers, 90% of those truckers, 90% uh, of the truckers who cross the border are vaccinated. This is the 10% who aren't and who do not want to get the vaccination. Uh. So the idea of, of this having grassroots or uh, the perspective of a prairie fire isn't so. This is a small, loud, perhaps menacing minority who have seen the value of social media, many of which uh, we believe are funded by Americans. We think there may be some American elements here. We are not sure, but certainly money has come from the United States, who think this situation mirrors that of the United States. It does not, Mina. It does not. I was struck that the truckers' union did not uh, support this at all. Uh, Emma Jacobs, I know you need to leave us at the half, so just wanting to ask you if you 
see any sense of how this will end or when this will end from your vantage point? It's really hard to tell. The mayor said yesterday he, he really he doesn't know. He doesn't see the end of this. And, and I think just in addition to the concerns about um, you know, potentially vi- potential violence in, in confronting um, the, the people in the streets in Ottawa, I think there's no level of government really wants to own the optics of that either. Um, and, and as the police have noted, there's there there may be children in, in a lot of these vehicles. So it is a really delicate situation. Emma Jacobs, a reporter for NPR based in Montreal, covering the events in Ottawa. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Steve Riley, investigative reporter for Grid News, is with us. Andrew Cohen, a journalist and associate professor in journalism and communications at Carleton University in Ottawa, is also with us. And so are you, our listeners, 866 733 6786, the number. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, on Instagram at KQED Forum, or email us forum at kqed.org. Yurik writes, if this continues to gain steam in California, my concern is the truckers may try to block the ports. I can only imagine the dangers of having gigantic vehicles and people protesting near our ports and what could then happen if it got out of hand as part of a statewide, national, or international movement. I think this could at the very least be used as an excuse to jam up the ports and drive up inflation in an attempt to screw up the economy in an election year. Steve Riley, you have noted that there are copycat protests that are being planned or have flared up in other parts of the world, but that there's also been some rumblings about something like this in the U.S. What can you tell us about that? Uh, we've been monitoring the social media activity about the protests, and a lot of groups have started, and uh, channels on Telegram have started to discuss the possibility of a protest in the United States. Uh, now, we don't know whether this will take off. We don't know whether it will um, extend beyond isolated protests to anything larger, uh, but there are a lot of questions about where this takes takes off from here, and as the professor noted, um, the uh, concerns about vaccination and the percentage of the population that is vaccine hesitant uh, is larger in the United States than in Canada. So uh, there are a lot of uh, a lot of issues at stake here. Well, Andrew Cohen, even though this is not a prairie fire, as you say, and that this is really sort of these tactics have really caught the Canadian government by surprise. It sounds like you are at least from some of the pieces that I've read, the opinion pieces that you've written, that you are a bit frustrated by the federal government's response and that you see a lot at stake here uh, besides just this particular protest, but even as you have said, the legitimacy of the federal government. Can you talk about why you feel that way? Um, when you, uh, we had in this country, Mina, something called the October crisis in 1970. And uh, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister. He's the father of, or was the father of, of Justin Trudeau, our current yes. prime minister. And there was a kidnapping of the British Trade Commissioner, and there was a kidnapping of a, a, of a provincial cabinet minister whom they murdered. And Pierre Trudeau saw the government of Quebec, the provincial government, as wavering, as trembling. He thought it might fall and fall to other elements. He did something extraordinary. He invoked something called the War Measures Act, which then granted the government emergency powers. He suspended civil liberties, and he brought in the army. I was a Montrealer. We were very happy to see them in embattled English Montreal. He saw it as a challenge to the authority and legitimacy of the state. I see this as well 
as a challenge to the, the, the legitimacy of the state. You have nihilists in this crowd. You have swastikas in this crowd. You have Confederate flags in this crowd. Um, yes, there are many truckers who really want nothing more than a, a, a rescinding of the, vaccine, um, of the vaccine mandate. But you have many others, and this has been intimated in our conversation so far, on the far right who have used this and have said as much. The leaders of this uh, protest have said, we want the government to resign, we want the governor general to dissolve parliament, and we want them to, if they don't, rescind these measures. Well, who are you to dictate to the duly elected officials of Canada, when I say duly elected, I mean recently elected, September, and they had, if Canadians wanted, they had a far-right opportunity in the People's Party of Canada, which did not want vaccine mandates, and the People's Party of Canada got 6% of the vote and no seats in the House of Commons. So what I see now is is um, elements here, and we don't know the extent of it, there's only early reporting on it, but elements who have a much bigger agenda than the occupation of Ottawa or the siege of Ottawa. I think they want to disrupt and destabilize the government of Canada as they are trying to do in other places. And that is the worry that I see and many people see here having remembered what has happened in this country before. And so the question for the federal government is how do you respond? This Trudeau does not want to be the second Trudeau in a generation uh, to bring troops into the streets. Uh, so they'll have to find, if he doesn't want the optics of that, he'll have to find some other way to end the siege of Ottawa and open those border crossings and allow people to have their lives back, understanding the legitimacy of legitimate protest, but this is no longer that. If they wanted to sit on Parliament Hill, which is like our Capitol Hill, and protest yep. from now until eternity, they can. But to, to, to block and bring to a standstill the parliamentary precinct is something entirely different. One of the things, though, Andrew Cohen, that I've been hearing is that that these protests have tapped into probably wider spread frustration about the strictness of public health measures. And I know that you've said Canadians are very highly vaccinated, you know, re-elected Trudeau and, and support his mandates and so on. But there have been some provinces, and I know they've been led by conservative premiers who have said that they will rescind some of these rules. But do you think that there is some truth to this tapping into frustration over these measures that might be propelling some of this in terms of the protest? Well, Mina, who isn't frustrated after two years of COVID? Who hasn't seen their lives rearranged and their views of things discombobulated and the world turned upside down. There's obviously out there enormous frustration, uh, particularly people if you've lost your job or if you haven't gone to school or if you've been isolated from your friends. Undoubtedly, there is a distemper in our world, in the United States, particularly in Canada, to a lesser degree, but nonetheless, it's here. So no one can deny there is a discontent. But we live in a country in which the majority rules. And uh, the, that majority uh, uh, put in place a parliament that overwhelmingly endorses the public health measures that we put in place. Now, any society has protest as a vehicle, um, and how you manage that um, is the measure of your effectiveness as a society and the nature of your democracy. We're proud to have uh, uh, protests in the society. We know lots about them, Aboriginal Canadians and, and others. Uh, the question is, at what point does it threaten the, um, the authority of those to govern? And I think the fear is that if, particularly if this turns violent, that that is indeed what they're after. 
the leaders of this, as I said, have made very clear demands of what they'd like. They have associations with far-right groups, and that is what is bothering many people. Not that there aren't legitimate folks out there who have every right to go to Parliament Hill and say, rescind the mask, man, uh, the, 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 the mask mandate and other elements of this. They do, um, and they should be listened to. But they shouldn't displace the government, which is what this crowd wants to do. Well, a couple of comments from listeners. Bruce writes, it seems that the Ottawa truck protesters took pages from the Minneapolis and Portland Occupier strategy book. This listener on Instagram writes, these same types of people who probably called BLM protesters thugs for marching in bridges and blocking highways for a few hours. But look at them now fighting to keep COVID strong and the pandemic going. One really last point, Steve Riley, you had mentioned that there is some exporting of America's well, America's political divisions globally, do you want to just say a little bit about what you learned about that in our last 30 seconds? Well, certainly the last few months, the last few years, we've seen uh, politicians uh, notice that there's a uh, interest, uh, there's a uh, there's a constituency for uh, vaccine hesitant uh, views and, and vaccine um, resistance among part of our population. And it looks like uh, you know, the words of U.S. politicians are um, are finding some residents uh, across the border in Canada. Steve Riley is an investigative reporter for Grid News. Thank you. My thanks as well to Andrew Cohen, a journalist and associate professor in journalism at Carleton University in Ottawa. My thanks are for Emma Jacobs, who joined us earlier from NPR reporting in Ottawa. And to you, our listeners, we will be talking next about high-speed rail. So stay with us for that. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.